All right, folks, it's time for Passing Period. Passing Period, of course, is a all of the above podcast extra that we drop in between our full episodes. Um, I'm Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. And um, Jeff, do you notice I, I, I'm sounding a little bit different today? I do. I, um, I think what's happening right here is evidence of our commitment and passion as yeah. educators and to the show because I had some, some version of the plague <laughs> some version <laughs> and, and have am now at least like a good 78 percent back nice, uh, now nice. and you got the got i got the, the tickles in the, the throat tickles, <laughs> the tickles i should have called out should have called a sub but it's just, it's so much work to have a sub you know that's you what write i'm a saying plan man exactly the kids like, the kids will start playing with stuff in the room yeah, they shouldn't man. be playing with so we're here yeah man yes all right so thank you for joining us um we uh want to discuss a story that we didn't include in our most recent episode, but we think it's a story that a lot of educators can relate to, especially if you're teaching in a metropolitan area. Um, and it relates to gentrification and the changing dynamics of our our cities, really, with regards to the housing crisis and how that is changing who's living where. Uh, so, Jeff, tell us a little bit about this story and where it comes from. Yeah, well, this story is it's a fascinating one. It comes out of the city of Berkeley. Uh, Berkeley, California. And so yeah. Berkeley, of course, being probably most famous for, uh, for being the home of the University of California at Berkeley, um, or Cal, as many people. The number two in, public in the school in the nation. <laughs> I'll throw that in there. The number two, the number two public the school. Number in the number two. Uh -huh. uh, public university that is. Yes. Uh, I'm sure they don't agree with that assessment. Beyond but, UCLA, um, but keep going. But Berkeley's also just a really fascinating community. It has historically been. Uh, a fairly diverse community, kind of right nestled right next to Oakland. Um, right. So in a big urban area, but also kind of has its own like little more small, smallish feel. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, is, is a famously progressive community, I think uh, many people would say. So uh, what's happening is, um, you know, as is the case in most big cities around the country, gentrification is just off the rails. And it, and the Bay Area is probably one of the most aggressively hit places with gentrification because housing prices are bananas in most places. Yeah. And housing prices are like utterly insane in the Bay Area. Yeah, you I know? think bananas and utterly insane are financial terms that... Technical industry apply. terms, yes. yeah, you might, Bananas, need to, might need to look them up. up there. Um, but I think I saw an article recently on Facebook, just thumbing through, that said to to like comfortably afford a one bedroom apartment in San Francisco now, you need to make two hundred twenty five thousand dollars a year. Right now, I I don't I didn't double check their sources and stuff on that, but yeah. even if their math is like ten percent off, like that's still. Crazy, that's a lot right that's yeah. bananas yeah. yeah like almost no one in our country makes that much money a year right um and here you have a whole city that's setting up its economy that way so berkeley exists like in close proximity to right. that level of like income inequality in our in our society so of course with that set of social conditions in place the population of berkeley has been shifting uh fairly significantly and as a result the population of berkeley's schools um, has been changing as well. Um, over the last decade, their school population has become more affluent. Um, and currently, only uh, 26, uh, nearly 27% of students at their school qualify for free and reduced price lunch. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of our audience knows what that means. Just in right. case you don't, that's the typical proxy factor used 
to give you a sense of what the level of poverty is among the students in the school. Um, so if you qualify for free and reduced price lunch, that's like a um, stand-in figure for poverty. So they, they currently have 27% of students qualifying. In 2010, 2011, in that school year, they had 44% of students require, uh, qualifying, yeah. right? So we're talking about like a, you know, 18 uh, or so percentage point drop, right? Um, now, um, the, uh, the school board, um, of course, is trying to figure out what this means. And right. um, the Berkeley Unified um, School District Technology G technology director jay nitschke um, sent a recent memo to the school board saying the ongoing gentrification of berkeley has changed the population of berkeley schools significantly uh this decade um this year uh 30.6 percent um, or just under a third of their population um, is considered to qualify as part of the unduplicated count of students who qualify for additional funding from the state under California's local control funding formula. Um, and so, uh, you know, this is, this is a, a significant drop from, uh, from what they had in the original year of that legislation, which was back in 2013, when they had almost 42% uh, of students qualifying. Um, that law counts students who are either low income or English learners or uh, foster youth, right? So the essentially the, the student groups in the state that are agreed upon by the legislature to be highest need and worthy of additional funding, right? Um, so lots of, lots of movement here in Berkeley, um, lots of ripple effect in the schools. Manuel, um, I know you work in a school that is also um, you know, dealing with some similar factors yeah. that have similar ripple effects on enrollment and on budget and flow of dollars and all of that. So right. um, I'm very curious to get your thoughts on this. Yeah. So shout out to Natalie Orenstein, who um, wrote this for the website Berkeley Side. When I saw this article, you know, I really thought about my own teaching context in the city where I teach because our city is probably about the size of Berkeley. And um, it's like many cities across the United States facing ongoing gentrification, ongoing changes. I've seen a lot of families displaced. I've had a lot of students who um, who I who I had and then they graduated, went off to college and then were never able to afford to move back to their own city where they grew up because uh, the increased housing costs and all that. And and it's really sad and it's really tragic. When I saw this story, it's a, it might be the first time I really thought about how this impacts funding for schools that have traditionally had a significant number of um, students who um, were, like you explained, quote unquote, unduplicated are uh, students who come from backgrounds that the state has acknowledged require higher uh, amount of services and, and more funding to support. And I hadn't really thought about the impact on on funding. So when I'm when I hear about this Berkeley story and I think about the the changing dynamics and the shrinking population of students that they have who qualify for additional services. Now, think about what accountability exists to support those students and make sure that they are getting um, this funding. Because as the spokesperson for um, Berkeley Unified, Trish McDermott, said, like the, the number of these students used to calculate their, their funding from local control funding is going down, which means the funding is going to be going down, too. And recently in California, there's been some discussion about whether or not schools are doing a adequate job of showing where their money is going and making sure that they could show that this added funding is actually serving the students that it's intended for. So on one level, I think about 
those students becoming more and more of a marginalized group within a school that has more privileged students coming in and the need to make sure that we as educators make sure that those students are receiving uh, the support that they're supposed to receive so that they're not further marginalized as they become smaller and smaller groups within a school or within a school system. And also, uh, you know, I normally think about this as uh, something that impacts enrollment. So our enrollment has been declining. I don't know the numbers for Berkeley in terms of if their enrollment has been declining, but I know as families get displaced and move out to um, areas where housing is, is closer to being affordable, a lot of the local schools in the uh, metropolitan areas suffer from declining enrollment because the families coming in either are families that um, send their children to private schools or, or charter schools that they think are more high performing or the families coming in that are uh, young millennials that don't have kids yet. And and for whatever reason, you know, um, we have just fewer kids in the system. So I know my school has been impacted by declining enrollment in a very major way. I don't know if Berkeley has been impacted by declining enrollment, but they're clearly are going to be impacted by shifts to their funding and how much money they they have coming in. So to me, it's really interesting because I think a national conversation around gentrification and school choice and school funding and equity across the system is really colored by the impact that housing has had and the changes that our schools are experiencing because of this, this housing crisis. So I, I'm really interested in learning a little bit more about how Berkeley is adjusting to this. I know that my school specifically is is currently trying to to learn how to adjust and how to meet the needs of our incoming students who some of whom are a bit more privileged than we're used to, um, while also maintaining our identity and maintaining our focus on supporting all students and also trying to keep our numbers somewhere to where we can survive, so to speak, and get the funding that we need to uh, remain a um, high performing school. So yeah, it's uh it's a lot going on, Jeff. It's a lot going on. There is a lot going on. Um, yeah, I th so I think what part of what is really interesting here is that what we're reading about um, in the piece from Natalie Ornstein about Berkeley, um, and I think frankly what I understand to be the case in in your school is actually a somewhat unique. Uh, unique is probably too strong a word, but a somewhat unusual experience relative to what at least I think we see in a lot of other um, large urban areas where mm -hmm. this, where gentrification is such a strong force right. on housing and on community change. And um, that being that there, there were legacy schools in the community that were significantly diverse that were white people are actually re-entering or entering those mm -hmm. public schools, right? And the demographics are shifting. In a, in a lot of other cases, certainly I saw this overwhelmingly in New York and in a lot of the parts of LA Unified that, that I know well, you know, we might see some gentrification, but the white folks who move in ain't going to the public schools, right? right, right. And so, or they, you know, like start a new magnet program and they go there, right? right. Or the new dual immersion, dual language immersion program and they go there. Um, and, and so they might maintain some relationship to the public schools, but they're not going to the legacy. Yeah comprehensive high school that was there type of a thing, right? Or, or even elementary and middle schools that were there. And so, um, so in that kind of a manifestation, we see more an issue around gentrification of just huge declines in enrollment that threaten yeah. the existence of schools, right? I think in this kind of situation, we might be seeing both of, you know, yeah. of those things. And then the like 
challenges around shifting power dynamics, right? Where, um, you know, the needs of the of stu- of foster youth, English learners, um, and low income students might, uh, you know, you you had a school system that maybe was overwhelmingly thinking about the needs of those populations, even if their outcomes weren't great. Right. But now they're they're going to be starting to be influenced by these, you know more well-to-do, uh, you know, more entitled, more savvy, more uh, empowered, yeah. uh, you know, largely white families that are going to exercise influence over a system, um, at, you know, as sort of its new new occupants, right? Yeah, and there's some tension there, right? Because it's, it's something that, I mean, for one, I, I'll just take my school, for example, we are more than happy and thrilled to have as many new families uh, enter our school and school system as possible um, because we are a school to that wants to serve all students of all backgrounds and do great by them. And it's lovely having a little more diversity coming in. Uh, my school has traditionally been almost entirely black and brown, my whole, at least my whole time here. And now you're starting to see, and especially in our freshmen and sophomores, a little more diversity, which is a lovely thing. Um, but then there's also the concern, the concern about like, what does this mean in terms of whose voice is being heard and what the future looks like? And for us, we're grappling with those changes. I think Berkeley as well is grappling with those changes. And I'm sure there's many other uh, school uh, districts around that are grappling with that because, yeah, you're right. Usually when you see this play out, you don't see the um, incoming families going to the, the sort of legacy school that's in the area because that legacy school has all the problems of reputation and services and, and performance and all that stuff. But in certain areas, you they are going to that legacy school. I think my school site is sort of in the middle. Um, we're not, we don't have a huge influx of students. We're not um, experiencing nearly the amount of change that you're seeing in Berkeley Unified. But we're experiencing some of that and the declining enrollment. So almost like a double whammy of like, how are we going to survive with our numbers going down? And then how are we going to adjust to meet the needs of a increasingly diverse student body and make sure that everybody's voice is still heard and that make sure that no uh, particular groups are feeling that they are being left behind, so to speak. So grappling with all that, this would all be so much easier if we just didn't have such segregation in the first place in our housing and our school system. Jeff, why can't it just be, why can't it just be simple, man? Hey, that is an excellent question to which, I'm not sure there is an <laughs> there is anything but a disturbing American answer, uh, frankly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it you know I think that uh, we are at a very interesting historical place around issues of housing segregation and school segregation, right? And um, partially that's because of the 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 such extreme exacerbation of income inequality yeah. that we've seen that sort of created this like tipping point right where we have cities that are becoming full of these luxury condos and apartments that like hardly anyone can afford there you know we see these articles telling us about how you know there's all these new developments in la and most of them are vacant right they're really just investment properties for you know tycoons from around the world or whatever to stash their money right meanwhile we got thousands tens of thousands of people literally living on the street in tents and then a whole swath of the city that is living in this precarious place of like i can kind of make it work but it's hard like we are living a lower quality of life because housing has become such a larger percentage of 
um, of our monthly expenses, right. right? And so we can't take as many vacations. We can't buy as much other stuff as we might buy or spend as much on healthcare as we might need to spend or whatever, right? And, um, and so that is pushing people, particularly families, out of the city, right? Um, and causing these dramatic declines in enrollment um, that are, you know, that are happening and, um, and causing these kind of existential crises in larger urban school systems yeah. um, that are seeing these huge demographic shifts quickly, right? Um, and are, and have built up over time, larger bureaucracies to support the larger system, but you can't always just simply like proportionally shrink the bureaucracy at the same rate that the enrollment is declining, right? right. And then you layer on top of all of that, charter proliferation, which is totally out of control. I mean, that's my biased opinion, but we have too many charter schools in LA and not enough kids, right? And too right. many schools in general currently and not enough kids and don't have a real um, uh, thoughtful process of managing what school choice is going to look like in a way that actually supports sustainability for all the schools, right? Um, so all of this is kind of like bubbling, 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 and I think sort of like yeah. getting ready to boil over, um, you know, for us right now. And uh, I'm not sure, frankly, what the what the outcome is going to be, but we are we're like definitely careening, if that's the yeah. right word, towards. <laughs> Yeah. Some sort of precipice where something is going to happen, right? Like either districts are going to start just folding, right? right? Because they're not financially viable. Um, or we're going to make some sort of different choice, right? To like intentionally prop them up and uh, create, you know, better conditions in which they can actually survive, right? Yeah. Um, and that same, they're like parallel tipping point around housing might be happening. Like there could be another bubble coming or whatever, right? Um, right. So th there's a lot of big questions and intersections here between housing, community, and school. Yeah. Um, I have a question for our audience. Um, I want to know, audience, are you going to still be with me when I'm hosting all of the above by myself on the day that Jeff gets selected to be a uh, secretary of education and lead our nation. Um, because uh. I mean, you hear the man, I listen, to, you know, you hear the man every week. I listen to him. I I'm, I'm here next to him and I'm just like, man, I want to vote for Jeff, but that means he's, he's going to be too busy for all of the above. So I just want to know if our audience is going to hang with me if I have to do this by myself or, you know, maybe one of you wants to join me and, um, yeah. Anyways, we'll talk about that sometime. I, I appreciate the, um, the the flattery, uh, Dr. Rustin. I do. Um, I I will tell you, I'm not certain that that job is actually all that cool of a job. It's not, but I mean, uh, you know, independent of the fact you could make that it, you would make it, you would make it. I would Something. make I would make I would try to make it dope. Man. Yeah, we, we would do some fun <laughs> stuff. Let's be real, we would do some fun stuff. But I, but uh, outside of the fact that Betsy DeVos, who might be literally one of the worst people on the planet Earth, yeah, I said it. Yeah, uh, is currently in charge of that department, and whoever comes in ha after her is gonna like, you know, have to clean up an utter disaster. Yeah. Like disaster is far too kind of a word for what she's been up to for the last, you know, going on four years now. Um, you know, uh, yeah. shotguns in case of bears, for example. Um, you know, 
the that that job largely oversees like loans and things that I, you know, so bank then loans. When and you're when you're done counseling student debt for all of us, yeah, well, I, oh, that, that I can get down. Give me the hatchet <laughs> and the gasoline, slash and burn, baby, slash and burn. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I thank you for the kind words, Manuel. It is always um, a distinct pleasure to host this show with you and. Um, and I think in some ways, part of what, I mean, apart from just your your company and partnership, um, it is really helpful to me to be in constant conversation with a, a really thoughtful classroom teacher. And not that I don't have opportunities for that in my, in my regular job, but like, I don't usually get to like sit down for hours at a time and talk right, right. to someone in great depth, you know, without like the urgency of we got to get something done. Um, so, uh, so I learn a lot from that and take a, you know, take away a lot from that and, and feel like it, it enriches my perspective. So, um, I, I am grateful to you for, for this, yeah. uh, this team we have here. Yeah. Just, rem just remember me, man. Remember the little people, me and our audience. <laughs> just remember us, man. Oh man. All right, folks. Thank you for tuning in to this week's passing period. Again, this is just a podcast extra we do have video extras and most recently our video extras um include one-on-one -on -one discussions with our two guests from our upcoming episode which is going to be about supporting lgbtq youth so so uh, dope you so definitely dope. don't want to miss it definitely so make sure you head over to our youtube channel um at some point youtube.com slash all of the above for those video extras but thank you for stopping by during passing period and we'll see you in about a week with a full-blown episode. All right, folks, get to class.